record is crap. <sighs> Dude, I can't watch the damn movie. I'm gonna lay down. I'm gonna lay down for this stuff. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Pod 137. Today, we're going to be talking about the movie Being John Malkovich, directed by Spike Jones, written by Charlie Kaufman, really sort of the ground zero of a certain kind of movie that would come after it, which would be a much more daring, meta, this could go anywhere kind of movie. And we're also talking about Spike Jones as a filmmaker, a director as a, a modern voice to this day. Uh, who is with us? Hello, it's Daniel. Hey gamers, it's me, Connolly Cruz, the people's champion. Uh, here with a man who, I wish I could find a door into his twisted brain. It's uh, Edwin Gomez. Well, America, I got nothing. You know, I'm, I'm just here and I'm very hungry right now. I'm Secret Movie Club's eat. own nasty little boy. Our very own beastie boy. <laughs> the original nasty boy. Nasty little yeah. cinephile. Yeah, the cinephile that wants motion pictures be shown. Unlike someone that doesn't show good stuff. Hey, Secret Movie Clubbers, in case you're new to the podcast, whenever Edwin says someone, he's talking about me. I'm Craig Hamill, the uh, founder <laughs> programmer of Secret Movie Club. And you'll notice that when he says someone, it's always negative. So you can you can figure that one out. I'm just I'm just saying the truth, man. This week, truth. Secret Movie Clubbers, when you hear this podcast tonight, we're going classic Valentine's Day, uh, both on 35 millimeter. I'm happy to say the Philadelphia Story and His Girl Friday, uh, two movies I love. If you've never seen either, never seen either in the big theater, His Girl Friday is actually in my top 50 of all time. And then also tomorrow, uh, Saturday, February 11th, both on 35 millimeter. In fact, I just brought him into the booth. Alfred Hitchcock's The 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes, my two favorite movies from his British period. Then Monday, we're doing Disney anime, animated movies again, Lady and the Tramp, Beauty and the Beast, our second night <laughs> of that. Disney's anime. Disney anime. Uh, the animated originals, Lady and the Tramp, Beauty and the Beast. And then for Valentine's Day, we may have tickets. It is selling well, so but you'll have a few days when you hear this. Uh, we are doing Notorious, Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. My favorite. And Stanley Donnan's Charade. One of my favorites. Yeah, I love, I love them both. Uh, although I will say of the two, I'm actually a bigger Charade fan, interestingly. I, I, and then Wednesday, we are doing, actually both on 35, I took the plunge. Uh, we are going to do Clint Eastwood's Play Misty for me and Roman Polanski's Frantic. And the reason that we're doing those is we're actually doing a little carve-out series of all the filmmakers who had to make a Hitchcock movie because they were so influenced by Hitchcock. If you've never seen Clint Eastwood's debut, play Misty for me. It's actually one of my favorite Eastwoods. Alex, Olivier, had projectionist, just watched it and loved it. Good. He should love it's it. It's great. Uh, it's one of Eastwood's best. And it's very uh, Hitchcock-influenced. And if you've never seen Frantic with Harrison Ford from the 80s, it's a lot, a lot of fun. It's Roman Polanski's Hitchcock. And I actually got to hear Harrison Ford at USC. I got to talk to him briefly in a very small room. And uh, someone asked him what it was like to make Frantic. And he told one of the most hilarious stories I ever heard, which was when he landed in France, Roman Polanski took him aside and said, Harrison, Harrison, you are like coked up spider. Cocaine, so much cocaine you've done. And you're in a web, a cocaine web. 
And you go this way, you go that way, Harrison. But it's just cocaine. It's cocaine and you, the coked up spider in your own web. And if you see the movie, his character is not on cocaine. So I don't know exactly what Roman Polanski <laughs> was getting at there. But Harrison Ford actually, who was very nervous in person, and he's talked about this. Harrison Ford has a lot of social anxiety. The one moment in, in the time that he really came to life was telling this Roman Polanski story. And he jumped up and imitated Roman Polanski. And it was like actually my favorite part of the whole his whole Q&A. But anyway. <laughs> watch the film and then thursday uh we are doing both on 35 as well another dark noir uh heartbreak riff on valentine's orson wells the lady from shanghai and nicholas ray's in a lonely place two bangers again if you've never seen them on the big screen join us as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can see everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. And uh, you can get tickets at Eventbrite. And right around this time, God willing, we will have announced our Palm Springs 70 lineup, which will be the first weekend in May. So check that out. We're going back to the Camelot to show some 70 millimeter. And uh, we would love to have you come along. And this year, uh, we hope you'll enjoy it. It's going to actually... You may be surprised by what we show, but uh, we'll announce that. Better be Mad Mad World, man. I swear to God, in the last podcast, I said it before, it better be Mad Mad we World. We'll sell tickets. Mad Mad World will sell tickets, motherfuckers. It will sell. It is shot in the desert in the area of Palm Springs. I've said it multiple times. <laughs> multiple times. People oh, don't no. listen. Edwin's trashing his room. Oh my god. Yeah. Stop. That's right. Edwin, no. Edwin, Blu rays are expensive. Look, just Edwin. <laughs> Interestingly, in a sort of informal two parter, Edwin likes to talk about the unofficial Spielberg trilogies, which I think is great. This is almost an unofficial two-parter. Last week, uh, you may want to listen, we talked about Jackass, and Spike Jones was a huge part of that. And this week, we're talking about being John Malkovich and Spike Jones. Now writer-director Charlie Kaufman was working on a sitcom with Chris Elliott called Get a Life, and he was very frustrated because, you know, when you work on a team like that on a TV show, you really have to write in the voice of the showrunners. And Kaufman, just as an exercise, wrote this crazy script called Being John Malkovich, which was about this puppeteer who works in this weird seven and a half floor with low ceilings and discovers a portal into the mind of actor John Malkovich. He wrote it. It was just so that he could write something he enjoyed. It got noticed by everybody, but no one thought it would get made. And it was famously, I think, one of the first scripts that maybe even the reason the blacklist was created. I have to look that up. But it was a, a script that everybody was passing around. But everyone would be like, well, you'll never get this made. Spike Jones read it and loved it. And Spike Jones was coming off a decade of just banger music videos, banger commercials, and like David Fincher, like that sort of cohort of the people coming out of commercials and music videos, Spike Jones got behind it, wanted to do it. John Malkovich read it and didn't want to do it. And he said, you should make it Tom Cruise. Why don't you get Tom Cruise? You don't want it to be me. And Charlie Kaufman interestingly said, well, no, I wrote it because you're funny to me for some reason, if it's about you. Also, it's really fun to say John Malkovich. And uh, John Malkovich had to sort of give up those two points and eventually came on board. And this movie was made in 1999, just before sort of 9-11 and Iraq and everything. It was sort of the, one of the last gasps of the innocent 90s in a way. And it starred John Cusack as puppeteer Craig Schwartz, Cameron Diaz as his wife. Is his wife's name Lottie? Yeah. His homely wife, Lottie. His homely animal-loving veterinarian wife, Lottie, or whatever whatever she is. And then Catherine Keener as a Maxine who everyone lusts after in the movie, Malkovich, Cusack, and Cameron Diaz. And it got made. It was a hit. 
it launched uh, Spike Jones's career and it launched Charlie Kaufman's career. And very soon after that, they would collaborate one more time on a movie called Adaptation. And then Kaufman would begin to direct his own scripts. Although Michelle Gondry also did Human Nature and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which were Kaufman's scripts. And there's the Clooney Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Uh, after those collaborations, I think Kaufman probably felt that his sensibility wasn't exactly being channeled by the, the filmmakers doing his scripts, although I know he liked working with them. But Kaufman would begin to direct his own movies and he has directed uh i want to say two but has he directed three yeah synecdoche new york anomalisa and i'm thinking of ending things though anomalisa i think was co-directed anyway uh let's just dive into this whole thing 1999 being john malkovich connor i'd love to throw it to you first because you were saying to me this is actually one of your all-time favorite movies so you know in high school when i was getting into film as an art i really got into charlie kaufman and i have like printed versions of a couple of his scripts. I think I've read this on a previous episode, so I don't want to retread it, but the intro to being John Malkovich that he wrote in the printed version of that script, he was clearly in the struggle parts of adaptation. He detests himself and the art of screenwriting. But um, I think this movie is, one, it's just, it's so funny in so many dark, weird little ways and just absurd little ways. We haven't talked about, I, I think my favorite part of the movie is the fifth main character, uh, Orson Bean, as the boss of the company that John Cusack uh, works at, which is where he finds this portal into John Malkovich's head. Dr. Lester, and there's so much weird stuff about Dr. Lester. He's, he's a very lustful old man. <laughs> he's in a weird symbiotic relationship with his therapist where his therapist clearly has a hearing disability but he thinks he has a speech impediment they're enabling each other <laughs> in a way when i was younger it's interesting i, I watch it now Everyone in this movie is pretty terrible. John Cusack being probably the worst. But even like the other characters aren't really great. The only two really sympathetic characters that I would say are major in any way are Malkovich himself, who is clearly sort of a victim at the winds of this supernatural existential horror that is happening to him. And then probably the most sympathetic character is the monkey. Oh, for sure. Who does get his own flashback. <laughs> That's maybe my favorite part of the movie, was the monkey flashback. So many weird little choices like that that just make, make me laugh. I love the look of the movie, too. There's something about Jones's peeled back, this very simple cinematography that I feel like is very evocative at the same time. He actually, in my research, he and Lance Accord talked about that, that they actually felt that the movie needed a very simple kind of stripped-down look. They didn't completely understand why. I think it's because the material is so outlandish. It needed to maybe be ballasted by a very simple straight ahead approach. I think the movie's kind of haunting in a way. I think that's the thing that I like the most about it. I find the movie very troubling because it's about these very awful characters who come across. There's that scene where John Cusack is like, don't you think about all the existential questions about this? And Catherine Keener's like, no. <laughs> and then next scene, they're already exploiting it. Alex pointed out the ending, the horror of like the ending and knowing what's going to happen to this girl that we're seeing, presumably because of the way it works as she's giving birth or like as she's pregnant. It's just a really good movie. I find it very inspiring, very brave in terms of really making a lot of very bold leaps. I'm not the biggest fan on being John Malkovich. I, I saw it at a young age where I was barely getting to the art house cinema. I remember getting it at Amoeba for like 
four ninety nine, and uh, I watched it. I couldn't understand what was happening until it finally kind of caught up to like, oh, this guy found a port to John Malkovich's head. And he's sort of exploiting it as much as it goes. And he found a way of actually controlling, actually being John Malkovich, like controlling him and being himself in his body, which is kind of interesting, though. I like, I like that part. I agree with Connor that there's not one likable person in that movie whatsoever besides uh malkovich himself and charlie sheen i keep forgetting charlie sheen's in that movie which is so random my favorite part in the movie is when john malkovich goes inside in his own head and see a whole bunch of malkoviches and they keep repeating malkovich malkovich it's, it's the most hilarious thing ever i think my favorite part about that bit edwin is when Malkovich gets spit out of his head and the guy who was in there gets spit out at the same time and the guy who gets spit out is like, it was great this time. <laughs> so, so pumped. <laughs> the guy showed it. I didn't want to revisit it again because like I say, it's not my favorite. Me personally, I prefer adaptation the most because adaptation I can very much handle because I know what's happening and I think I'm like, Nicholas Cage as Charlie Kaufman is hilarious. That's is great casting. Edwin refused to revisit the film. I, I didn't want I, I to say it again. The the ending, I, I don't like the ending whatsoever. I hate it. It just makes me mad. Like, John Cusack character goes inside the little girl's head and is like, oh, God, I miss you, God. Like, it's same, like, some weird thing. I just, I just hate it. I, I just hate it. I just, I don't like it whatsoever. Just bugged me so much uh, i'm a big fan kind of in the same way saw this long time ago as a teenager and it took and it's one of those that I, I i worried going back i've watched it many times over the years but after college you kind of worry about going back to and it not holding up quite the same like it might have that edge of like the i'm just getting into this type of aesthetic but i think it transcends that well what's weird is that i do feel a little differently about it when i was younger i think i sympathized with Cusack probably in ways that are troubling to think about now. That's really interesting though. I don't know if you have any of the same vibe where there's like, especially as a very lovelorn teenager, I sympathized with him in certain ways and now I look and now I'm like, oh, that's awful. Uh oh like, yeah. Yeah. Uh -oh. No, I think that's that's my favorite thing in revisiting stuff is when you're like, oops, that's... But it no. reads both ways, I think. Yeah. It's so funny because it now seems so obvious, but the first time I never thought it was obvious that these are all like horrible people. There's a type of movie in this type of writing, especially, that can come across so disingenuous and this feels weirdly honest. My favorite detail about it is that no character outside of Maxine almost every character ends up in the same arc that they started in, whether it's in, in Misery or whatever. Because I think even Lottie is still in the same thing. She's Now she's in another happy relationship, but she's still the same person. My big takeaway this time was that this entire thing seems to be about desire in different capacities. Desire for success, desire to live forever for Lester's thing. Lottie sort of has like this almost like trans desire of like maybe she's not experiencing her full self because she feels like she's in the wrong body. Maxine's desire for control and pleasure and, and more uh, that I think is pretty interesting. And then Malkovich's desire, which is are, aren't important, they're sort of taken from him. Like the implications of especially like Lester's hunt are like really scary if you think about it taking away your life but you're going to watch it too yeah 100 the ending reminds me the ending that 
Edwin so viciously mocked mere minutes ago. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of I Have No Mouth, Yet I Must Scream, which if people don't know is a, a horror science fiction story by Harlan Ellison about this robot that is torturing like the last five people alive psychologically and physically. And it ends with the main character, spoilers, being the only one left alive, but having his body reduced in a way where he'll never be able to end his own life. And so he's going to have to be like psychologically tortured forever. And the line, I have no mouth because it's been taken from him, yet I must scream. Um, and that's true of both Cusack and now of like Malkovich and this girl and all these people going forward. I had kind of forgotten that earlier he talks when Lester's talking about the way that the vessel works, that there's a risk that you could become trapped inside and never leave. You're viewing things, but there's, you have no control, which is what Cusack's character lands in at the end where he gets to, he'll, he'll watch it, but he can't be the puppet master, which everyone's trying to, you know, be the puppet master. One of the top tier endings. There's something about this type of creative freedom in the way that this movie's made that is sometimes a rarity. Like it just seems to pull from so much and it all functions for character as much as it does for anything else. It's never showy. I do know that originally there was like written in the script that it was going to end with like a giant puppet fight. Really? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to see that scene. I don't know if you guys think about this, but I think I always thought that the ending felt almost cruel. Like our knowledge versus her knowledge and what she's experiencing in the unknown. And that sort of idea that they don't talk about it. I mean, when Lester's in Malkovich and he talks about it with Charlie Sheen later, the idea of like, you know, what if I told you you could live forever? But, you know, she has to be what, 40? 44. Which was weird for me because it's a year younger than I am. So I was like, Malkovich is 44? <laughs> so you could be a, a vessel and not know it. What they choose to explain and what they don't is why it works so well. Because it's hard to overthink. Because they only give you the basics and it kind of works on that. But yeah, I love it. It's a great movie. Watching being John Malkovich again, there are parts of it that I really like. And I admire how daring and out there it is. I find it very hard for me because there's not really anyone in there who's likable. And I don't mean that as a cheap knock because I don't think you need that I mean you know like I love a movie like Five Easy Pieces where Jack Nicholson is a very anti-heroic character and the whole movie is sort of filled with anti-heroic uh, characters but I had just forgotten how awful everybody is like in a way and so I was watching this and it was hard to really have a rooting interest in anybody and again you don't need that but I think that was probably part of what Charlie Kaufman wanted to do was to write a screenplay that wasn't and we'll get into this in the second half Robert McKee, I got a root for this main character that I like. Like, clearly, that was it. And I did, as the movie went on, it is a, kind of a horror film in a weird way. Now, I find it very funny. I had forgotten that whole training video. I mean, I remembered the training video, <laughs> but that whole, when he goes to do the training video and the character who really is Orson Bean puts his hand around the woman and he said, I'll build a floor for you and your entire accursed kind. <laughs> I was like, I'd <laughs> forgotten that line. And I was losing my shit. So I think the movie is hilarious. I think Malkovich, his decisions are great. The thing that I do find interesting is the movie seems to be about everybody wanting to be someone else in a way. And the irony being that the one character they all want to be is an actor whose career is being other people. And so there is a thematic strength to the piece and i mean this even though it's hard for me to get into now because of, of how sort of mean everyone is thematically i can get very into it because that seems very powerful it was very powerful to me that everyone is spending so much time wanting to find their happiness being someone else and then you know sp some of spike jones decisions 
are a lot of fun. So like the monkey thing where Lottie is tied up and then the monkey who's dealing with childhood trauma and we don't know what childhood trauma the monkey's dealing with. Suddenly we see the monkey flashback and he sees his parents tied up and he tries to get them out. That was the part that was so unexpected to me. I remember in the theater, I like probably because monkeys are my spirit animal too. I love this. Short shot. I think the music is really good and being there, Malkovich, the Carter Burwell. But then also um, Malkovich gives such a good performance specifically and he essentially plays the lead in the third act, which is interesting. The lead actor isn't in the third act of the movie, really. And he's playing this second performance. And he's actually he is playing it differently, which is pretty fun to see. That's such a super important point. You actually think it's John Cusack inside John Malkovich. I mean, he totally sells that. I did love that whole documentary. He's watching the news thing on himself where it yeah. cuts to Sean Penn. Sean Penn's talking about how John Malkovich is blazing a trail as a puppeteer. He's like, if we were all as brave as Malkovich. Yeah. And then the weird David Fincher cameo that's so good. And you're like, man, David Fincher should act. You can see what Kaufman brings to me, John Malkovich, I think, and what Jones brings. And then they go on and make another movie together. As Connor was talking about, Kaufman was actually adapting The Orchid Thief while they shot being John Malkovich. And Jones loved the script, and he was adapting it for Jonathan Demme, which is really interesting. And then Jonathan Demme's company like read the script and was like, uh... Because what Kaufman eventually did was write himself into the script, create a fictional brother named Donald, a fictional twin brother, and then make the movie about the act of adapting and about screenwriting itself. And Demi and his producer were like, oh, it's a great script, but it's not what we signed up for. And Spike Jones wanted to do it right away. So they made adaptation with Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper and Nicolas Cage and Maggie Gyllenhaal. And then the actors from Being John Malkovich reappear because it shows the fictional Charlie Kaufman on the set of Being John Malkovich while he's trying to adapt The Orchid Thief. So it almost kind of ups the ante in terms of meta. Although I would say that being John Malkovich probably wins in the meta war. It's a weird guy. Weird guy, Spike Jones. Is even in the name Spike Jones? Born Adam Spiegel. Why gotta Why gotta ruin everything, Craig? Like I said before, not a fan of Malkovich, but I am a big fan of adaptation. Love adaptation. I think it's one of the best movies ever done. Uh, he started off um, doing music video for. Huh, great. The the Beast the Beastie, Beastie Boys. Boys. Weezer. Yeah, I, I, I don't, don't really care for Chemical that. Chemical Brothers? But yeah, I still don't care for it. I have the Criterion DVD of the their... You're not going to speak ill of the Beastie Boys in my look, presence. Look, 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 Connor. You can have your cool, grungy rock bands, man. I'm just speaking the truth about me, man. I'm just speaking the truth. But uh, he, he has a very interesting uh, style. It's almost fantasy. Like you're, you're in a fantasy world. And he likes to shoot on film. That's the one thing I like about Spike Jones. He likes to shoot on film. Except for her. He shot that digitally, which is uh, a shame. But he did he did shoot that stand-up he did with um that guy from Parks Recreation. Uh, on Aziz Ansari. Yeah, Aziz Ansari. He shot that on 60mm, so that's good on him. Spike Jones' style, it, you could almost call it lo-fi whimsy. Yeah, exactly. He used handheld stuff most of his movies. Not all of them, but most of them. It's very interesting. I barely noticed it when we when we did uh adaptation and like, oh wow, this is like a pattern he does. You know, it's very cool, very whimsical. It's a mix, you know, he I think he keeps it in locked off for most of his the stuff and he he uses the 
you know, handheld. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I like to do when I, when I shoot stuff is you, this sounds like really obvious now that I'm saying it, but you use the different techniques to evoke the different things you want to evoke as opposed to just committing to a sort of type of technique for the whole movie. I sent you this video. We did like a menagerie of Jones stuff the other day. and Inspired um, by you because you told me he had directed that documentary on the Beastie Boys. He actually has a fifth film that came out a few years ago, Beastie Boys Story, based on the book with uh, the two remaining Beastie Boys, Ad Rock and Mike D, talking about their formation. He actually has a section in their book, uh, Beastie Boys book, which I would recommend, where he has a lot of behind the scenes photos from their sabotage music video, which I, I think is one of the best. He has two, for me, contenders for best music video video ever made sabotage being one of them and then probably the real contender is a uh, weapon of choice with christopher walken dancing around that hotel it's such a great simple beautiful video i i, I kind of came to the realization looking through all of his stuff how much i think his stuff actually means to me and also how i've never really connected with short films but i've always loved like music videos and sketches which are really just kind of hyper optimized versions of short films I think there's a lot of, especially modern directors who come from some of that world, music videos like Jones and Fincher, who I really, really like. Um, in some ways, music videos have, there's like a silent film aspect to it because what's going on can't really be connected. I mean, some videos will have people talking over it. And so they have to be inherently very cinematic in whatever sort of story they're trying to tell. And, uh, but yeah, I sent this video to Craig, this fully flared, people should look it up. It's an intro he did for this skate video that consists of these skaters skating and then things in the environment that they're skating on will just explode. It's all shot in super slow motion with this uh, kind of weird electronic angelic <laughs> track. Yeah, really weird feeling that evokes too, because you're watching some of them eat it as a direct result of the explosions, and yet it, it seems to capture something about the essence of skating? It seems very transcendent. You're watching it and you, you feel like, oh, these people are transcending by being blown up while skateboarding. I think weirdly, I kind of fall off of him like in later years. I mean, I really liked the documentary, but I think that it was probably mostly because of the Beastie Boys, more so than necessarily his influence. Um, I liked Where the Wild Things Are in her, but I definitely like them a lot. Not nearly as much as I like his Kaufman pairings. And I kind of feel the same way about Kaufman stuff. I, I kind of wish they would work together again. I think Jones, I really love him, but I, I feel like he needs a little bit of like a secondary alchemy for it to really like come alive for me so I, I wish he would find like a collaborator like that again that's the really fascinating thing to me when you look at the spike jones charlie kaufman collaborations and then the michelle gondry charlie kaufman eternal sunshine of the spotless mind they're fascinating mixes of the sensibilities of two different artists but i think there's like a gold that comes out of that like combination like uh not to the same degree, but the same way that like, as much as I like certain songs by Wings, John Lennon and Paul McCartney never wrote anything as good as they wrote together, even if they like eventually couldn't work together because of whatever reason. Not that Jones and Kaufman had that falling out, but more so that Kaufman wanted to move on. With Kaufman specifically, I find his solo stuff, probably Synecdoche is my favorite, uh, his debut, but... I find it fascinating, but very dark and very negative. And you can see that that's probably who he is, you know, as a dude. Whereas I think Gondry and Spike Jones provided that 
balance of light. It's, I mean, I don't mean to sound cliched, but it's the Apollonian Dionysian, the light and the dark, the thing Lynch talks about in Twin Peaks, the return that creates this tension. And if it's all light and whimsy, or if it's all dark and negativity, somehow the tension's out of it. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty high on the Jones train too. There was, I was a big Weezer kid growing up and he did a bunch of the original like blue album Weezer era music videos, including Buddy Holly and Undone that were both great videos, but also especially the Buddy Holly one were kind of pushing creativity, blending with new technology. So Buddy Holly's music video blends Weezer into an episode of Happy Days, which in the early 90s was just like an un sort of a crazy thing in the same way that like Forrest Gump was doing at the time, I believe, with the way it would use, put Tom Hanks into archival footage. But I remember specifically, there was this great run of DVDs in the early 2000s. And they were called the Director's Series. And there were collections of Spike Jones and I believe Michelle Gondry. And I think there was one other one, but they were just music videos, short films, and, and I think commercials of these directors' work. And it was kind of the first insight into the creative tickings beyond just features and like the way that they express themselves to define their style and their voice that eventually let them create the things that we now know them for. And I was always very taken with that. And his music video stuff, I think, transcend into his movies where he sort of feels like someone who puts pen to paper to come up with the idea and then approaches, well, how do we actually do this without really compromising? I don't think that's really changed because he's recently, I guess in the last five plus years, he did a commercial for Apple featuring FK Twigs dancing with this environment that keeps expanding. Yeah, we showed it's it beautiful. at our cornucopia. It's like a cornucopia. genuinely yeah. beautiful thing that almost tricks you when you realize it's an ad. And then he did a perfume commercial with Margaret Qualley, I believe, that's this crazy, very much in the vein of his Christopher Walken stuff. She's watching some type of live theater. She cries and leaves and then does this extreme dance where she starts to blow up pieces of the theater. And then it, in the end, it's a perfume thing. So he seems to have like this ability to convince people to just let him make whatever he wants and he'll tie it back in. And then you'll remember it. Like I remember that it's, you know, yeah, I remember that it's an Apple commercial, not because of the product, but because of like the, the value of it. I, I would love to hear his takes on how he kind of balances this idea of working in the ad world to that degree and keeping it his own, because I feel like you don't bring him in unless he gets to do that. And I'm assuming he doesn't say yes unless he gets to I feel like Taika Waititi, I would, would wonder, I'd love to ask him if he was influenced by some of that stuff for his Belvedere vodka ad he's done recently with Daniel Craig dancing around the hotel. He's a great artist to run into when you're trying to figure yourself out. And I think that grows with you, but he presents kind of the idea of you, you can do anything. You can make anything work. Like his sensibilities blend into whatever he's going to work on. Like I don't necessarily, I mean, I guess I do now because of stuff like Tony Hawk's pro skater, but like the concept of things exploding while you skateboard is not really what you would associate with like the sport, but he's blended that and it feels uncompromising, but also feels like appropriate. And like, he still understands the stuff he's working in. And yeah, I think in the realm of collaborators, like you guys were saying, I think two people that just get each other and elevate each other's work because of their differences and their, the ways that they're in sync is pretty insane for adaptation and um, being John Malkovich especially. Filmmakers like Spike Jones or comedians or artists or writers or musicians, anybody who gets you to go like punk, it's why I love punk. Oh man, I want to do that. I could do that. And it gives you an in. I think the irony though is that like we were saying about Jackass last week, Spike Jones's ideas are actually incredibly clever. Again, it's not enough. You couldn't just be like, I have this crazy idea. It's weird how his ideas 
genuinely work. You know, a commercial we didn't show that I still found interesting was the one where people trash a Gap store. I don't know if you've ever seen that's a Spike Jones ad. And it's, it's sort of be like, hey, Gap's got a new look, but it's just people tearing apart a Gap store. And it's actually very, you go, oh, oh, I get it. That's actually great to the idea and what Gap wants to communicate. And it's very Spike Jones. Probably the thing I got the most out of was the night based on Connor's suggestion where we did a cornucopia of Spike Jones work because I was watching his music videos and his commercials and his skate videos. And I actually thought to myself, this guy should, Ed, Spike Jones, if you're listening, you can totally take this idea, my gift. Gift's the wrong word. That was obnoxious. But like, do it, man, if, if it inspires you. I think Spike Jones should do a musical because I was watching all of these dance things. You know, he has that great uh, Praise You where they're in front of uh, the Westwood Theater. They're all just like the choreography is just Spike Jones and whatever they call themselves. I forgot the Encino Ensemble or whatever it is. And they're just doing this and no one knows what's going on. Or the Bjork video, which is great. Oh, so quiet. And I thought to myself, man, he's so musical. And, you know, he loves skate. He really should make a full out Busby Berkeley Spike Jones musical. And I would be the first person in line for that. I wonder if he guest directed that sequence towards the end of Jackass 2. It almost would make sense in my brain. I thought it's funny you said that. I subconsciously just assumed that was Spike Jones. And it was also bittersweet to me. You know, one of the more fascinating storylines of the last 30 years years in film culture is that Spike Jones and Sofia Coppola were married. When you see them in the 90s, they're clearly totally in love with each other. And we showed a music video from the Chemical Brothers Electrobank where Sofia Coppola is a gymnast. Just the way the camera looks at her, you can tell he's so in love with her. And you can tell that she's so like in love with Spike Jones because she's after Godfather 3 going in front of the camera again as the main character in the Spike Jones music video. And it's a great video. And then to know what happens to them, which is that they divorce, she makes Lost in Translation, and people posit that the Giovanni Ribisi character has Spike Jones elements in it. And then he makes her, which is sort of his response, I think, to the divorce as well in, in, in a number of ways. It's also an interesting thing I think about, about how really talented people, I mean, Scorsese made this movie 40 years ago and called it New York, New York, about how really talented people, La La Land is a more recent Damien Chazelle example, how really talented people in the arts often can't make a relationship work. That's not always true, but it's often true. Maybe the narcissism or the egos or the, just the personality types. And it just always was a bummer to me. <laughs> I guess I, I like the idea of Spike Jones and Sofia Coppola together. And I mean, look, divorce has happened. I know I'm a child of divorce. It, it's just an interesting storyline. I think in the long run, I think they might be cool with each other now at this point, because Chris Pontius of Jackass has a supporting role in her late 2000s movie Somewhere, which I feel like has to be a Spike Jones connection. Why else would Chris Pontius, who's not known for doing anything else, <laughs> have a supporting role in this movie with like Steven Dorff and Elle Fanning. Yeah, that's believable to me. So uh, now we move on to pop culture final thoughts. Guys, talk about whatever you want that has nothing to do with the topic we talked about today. Who wants to go first? I got this one. It's not a lot of great motion pictures, you know? The one I kind of revisited a couple days ago was The Man with Two Brains, Steve Martin picture. You know? I, I remember it. It's not that funny. Yeah, it's not that funny at all. There, there's a few <laughs> stuff that are funny, but yeah, no, it's, I don't know. Just didn't have that Steve Martin vibe I wanted. Yeah, it was okay. And then, oh, God, I revisited um, the Richard Pryor movie, um, The Toy, which is a, a remake of a French movie called The Toy. But instead of a French guy, 
it's Richard Pryor who gets bought by a very rich white kid. And I mean, <laughs> it's got some problems, but they kind of talk about it in the movie, but not a lot. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. It was the 80s. At that point, Rich Pryor was like in everything. And um, of course, they had to put him as the toy, I guess. But yeah, you know, also again, like I said, uh, making a picture, short film, shooting at the Arch District. Hey, can you give people the link? Because you're fundraising right now. Yeah, well, you can follow us on the Instagram. Um, it, it is called The Last of the Grace. Uh, the Instagram handle is, yeah, it's basically The Last of the Grace. That's a, a line I took from a movie. Well, half of it's from the movie. I just put last in there because I love the word last. Like, last weekends. Last something. The Instagram is T-L-O-T-G movie. Thank you. Uh, Dan, I just said it right there. Go there and uh, donate. Edwin is raising uh, his budget. And you're already a long way there. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm almost there, Craig. Come right out. Yeah, buddy. Coming for you. Coming for all you. Right. Want you know that. Well, Edwin, we, we also want to help you out. And it's awesome that you're making that movie. So we, we're going to figure out ways to help you out. I saw the indie hype darling Skinamarink the other day. It's not really fair to call it found footage, but it's it's very like online, if that makes sense. It's about two kids, two toddlers, really. They're like, it's like four and six or something who wake up in the middle of the night and they realize that their parents are gone and all the windows and doors to their house are gone. And then it's kind of this like hour and a half long. I, I sort of would describe it as like the nightmares you had as a kid that are very disconnected. They don't have like a cohesive story, but the imagery and the way that they scare you, it sort of takes advantage of that. And the way that it's shot very much, I think, feeds into that, that every corner of a house is scary and staring at the ceiling at a certain angle can be scary. And it's really interesting because it uses technology in an interesting way where it, it takes place, I would assume, the 90s or something. But it has like this very heavy uh, film grain and it's sort of as you watch it and there's like a lot of these locked off shots, you start to look for things in it that you think might be scary bits the way that the film grain kind of starts to collapse in on itself in the darkness that I think is, is super, super interesting. It's a weird one where I'd say watch it, but it has to be watched distraction free because there's like 30 minutes where I was like, I, I, this isn't really working for me. And then it clicked. And I feel like if you don't have that, it's an odd one. I was looking at friends reviews on Letterboxd and it has a super high margin of very low scores and very high scores. So I think it's very much a hit or miss in terms of if it'll work for you. But I, I thought it was a really, really interesting take in the realm of like creepypasta internet type of horror that's getting a little resurgence. Well, speaking of recent horror movies, I wanted to give a quick shout out to my girl, Megan, who's probably not doing as well now by the time this podcast comes out but the movie of january for sure yeah definitely a lot of fun um there's a video online people should go this is, feels like spike jones adjacent so like something he would like called the price master on youtube i posted this in our slack and no one responded to it oh yeah i wa i just didn't know what to say <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I did i always look at that stuff that was mega odd the guy in the mask like asking for money i guess you would call it a it's a video documenting a like a performance art live comedy prank thing where they've set up this yard sale people are coming up and looking at the yard sale and to one side there's a stage with a man the price master dressed oddly with a microphone in front of him with all this reverb on it and the typical interaction with the price master will someone will go there'll be a bookmark for three dollars and be like three dollars and he'll go three hundred dollars and they'll be like uh what about like four <laughs> and he'll say four 
hundred thousand dollars <laughs> and that's basically the whole video for 30 minutes yeah because i after a little bit i was like i just sort of sped through it i think the whole thing's really funny um i think it's worth watching one of those things that kind of lulls you in and when it hits those little peaks of him <laughs> i think it's funny every time he, he yells a big number i like that video top to bottom and you can find me at twitch.tv slash connor cruz and watch me play dnd tuesday evening twitch.tv slash nerdhala i'm getting towards the last third of of uh, middle march by george Eliot. i'm reading that i think now if people ask me what the greatest horror novel i've ever read has been and we'll see i mean i still got a third to go i'm gonna say middle march by george Eliot. if you didn't have to read it in college or high school george Eliot, who's really marianne evans writes about this fictional community called Middlemarch in England in the 1830s. And she writes about 11 characters and really talks about the dynamics of the town. And they're really two lead females uh, who are mirrors of each other in a way, Dorothea Brooks and Mary Garth. But what's interesting is unlike, say, Jane Austen, uh, or even unlike the Brontes or, or Gothic, the effect of Middlemarch is very unsettling to me because she'll write, I guess you would call it third person omniscient in a way. But when she's writing from any one character's point of view, it's third person limited. So what happens is she shows you how one character thinks and then she'll jump to another character and show you how that character thinks. And you'll, because it's limited, she won't really break out of that, but you'll see how wrong the characters are about the other characters and how correct they are, how sometimes they overlap, how sometimes they don't, how sometimes they're blowing things out of proportion. And you actually get what I think is an experience I've almost never had in a novel, which is probably the reality. And Connor, you were talking about this a little earlier about how you can impute motives to people and and then maybe that wasn't the right motive. Maybe you were blowing it out of proportion. Maybe you weren't blowing it out of proportion enough. So the horrific thing in reading the novel is seeing how characters get things wrong and how sometimes you understand where they're coming from, but they're monstrous. But they're monstrous in a very human way, which is very unsettling to me. They're just petty or jealous, or they don't have the communication skills to voice what they're feeling inside. So I think it's brilliant. I'm also really unsettled by it. And I'll, I guess I'll tell you what I think when I finished it. I'm two-thirds of the way through. And then I'm just throw this out there. I, I keep a list of my favorite novels of all time, and it grows like my favorite movies. And I think I'm putting Stephen King's The Stand on there. I'm just throwing down right now. Great book. I am nominating. I'm well, not nominating. It's personal taste, but uh, yeah. If you've not read Stephen King's The Stand, I think it is maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest, work of American literature of the last forty years. I just throw that out. You can you can fight me on it. <laughs> so uh, anyway, as always, thank you guys. Um, this episode was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. Nah. Podcast one thirty eight. We'll see how fickle he is. Yeah. From one pod to the other. Secret Movie Club podcast one thirty eight will be about Hitchcock's Spellbound. His nineteen, I think it's forty five or forty six. I know it's one of those years. Starring Ingrid Bergman and Gregory Peck. That has an amazing dream sequence by Salvador Dali. But it's also a romantic thriller, which uh, Hitchcock was one of the masters of and then we're going to talk about the romantic thriller that could be anything from basic instinct to uh, the bruce willis movie the color of night to whatever you want to do I, those are two romantic thrillers that jump to my mind i don't know why or play misty <laughs> for me clint eastwood paul verhoeven's a master of them as always you can find out what we're doing at secretmovieclub.com get tickets at eventbrite sign up for our newsletter and write us at community at secretmovieclub.com 
All right, guys. Thank you very much. Have a great week. I love you. Here's the thing you don't understand, Daniel. Anyone doesn't give a f about that. All these places need to be playing what he wants all the time, nonstop. Exactly. Doesn't, doesn't exactly. the new Bev do that already? Yeah, but sometimes they show crap. Wow. True. I can't, can't right. believe you would say that. I'm gonna send. I'm gonna clip that and send it to okay, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send it, dear Tarantino. Dear Mr. Bev. Yeah, do it. Do it. This do will it. not go without punishment. <laughs>